So John, 1 John, excuse me, chapter 5 is where we will be. And so while you are turning there, I want us to take a trip back to elementary school. And I wonder if that image I have on my screen brings the same kind of stress and anxiety it did for me a little bit. For when I was in elementary school, we had to take this same test over and over and over again. It's the test of the multiplication tables, for those of you who can't see it clearly. And, I, and we would be timed on this. I think this is a relatively familiar situation. We'd be timed to complete it and had all these different short multiplication problems, eight times five, so on and so forth, right? And we would race to do it as quickly as we possibly could. Why? Because we are supposed to have memorized the multiplication tables from one, I guess zero to 12, actually. I wrote one to 12, but no, zero was in there too. Those were the easy ones. <laughs> and uh, this test, however, made it very easy to confirm whether or not a student, such as myself, had indeed memorized these multiplication tables. Because if it took too long to complete it, Obviously, they were doing the addition to, to make up for the lack of knowing these, mem these tables memorized. And so when we had finished, we'd have to stand up there, and our teacher would write how long it took, because she had a stopwatch and was timing us throughout this process. And so then once everyone had finished and everyone's time had been written down, the test would then be dispersed amongst the peers of our classroom, and they would... Uh, be corrected as we went one by one through these questions and uh, we would recite together with the teacher the correct responses, theoretically. <laughs> now, this testing had its stressful moments, for sure, especially when we were first given it, with our first time we were supposed to have it done. However, today I can stand before you confident, confident that I know my multiplication tables not just because I did these tests and had it drink, or drilled into me, but also there were witnesses to this test. The clock showed that I was getting faster and faster, meaning my memorization was improving. And also, the, uh, my knowledge was proved by each, either a little star or C, depending on you know, whatever symbol the student used to show that I had the correct answer. So our passage this morning provides, again, two practical ways to have confidence in our faith. The first is through three unique tests. There's a test of love, a test of obedience, and a test of belief, followed by witnesses, three witnesses of our faith, and those witnesses being the Spirit, the water, and the blood. So, if you're able, would you please stand the reading of a portion of our text today as I read from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves, loves whoever has been born of Him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. 
For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Although I guess I could take one out of Don's playbook and have you stand for them. <laughs> nah, I won't do that to you. I thought we were just trying something new, frankly. Anyways, John is concluding his letter here. As we see, chapter 5 is our final chapter of this letter. And so he's making some final connections uh, to emphasize, again, this message that he's been bringing to, his church, to, the, to the churches that he's been writing to. And John has already mentioned these concepts that we've looked at, that we just read. However, in his conclusion, we're going to get this focus of a, perp- or, excuse me, a personal, practical application of having confidence in our faith. So that's what we'll be looking at, confidence in our faith. So our passage begins with this very direct statement about our position in Christ. Verse 1 was right there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. See, we are children of God because we have been born of God through the Spirit, which now enables us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. We are born of God because our belief that Jesus is this promised Savior that we have already delved into, but this promised Savior from way back, very first promise in Genesis, is now what we believe. And again, it's this, this agreement, not because it's a stated fact, but rather it's a firm trust, a confidence, and we hold it deep in our hearts, knowing that this statement is true. It's a kind of belief that we can come by the power of God through the Spirit that brings us new life. Saving faith is not something brief or, a, a, or a, a, just a acknowledging the idea of a statement like, I believe the world is round. No, no, this is a belief that we cling to, that we hold tightly to because we are born of God. To get a little specific about our language here, the Greek word there that we translate believes is in the present active tense, which then means that the belief has begun and continues as an ongoing activity. Now, the word born is in the perfect tense in the Greek, and it shows a past event with continuing effects. And if you're lost, it's okay. Because I'm going to rephrase it in a more uh, way to comprehend this a little bit. And so we could look at it this way. It says, our current active belief is the result of a past event of the new birth that changed us from an enemy of God to the child of God. Amen. And so essentially what's this saying is that we are made new. We are made new. 
Paul writes, excuse me, I'm skipping a page. That didn't make sense. There we go. This, then, is this vital first point that we have to understand when we look at faith that it's grounded in the work of Christ and we gain confidence that it's secured in Him. Plain and simple, it's His doing, not our doing. We do not muster faith by will or determination. Faith is a gift of God. Now that we can understand it this proper way, we now can look at these tests with this understanding of what it is. So let's look at the first test. The first test is the test of love. Christians are to be people of love. And if you were here uh, last month when I preached last, that was my whole sermon circulated around that idea. So love is commanded by God, but it's not merely uh, just commanded, but is also exercised because we are changed by the work of God. Right? So again, it's not what we do, but again, because of what God has also done in us. And so love flows from being born of God. And love, and excuse me, God is love, and therefore all people born of God will love, because it's, it's His nature, we see. And so in verse 2, it says, by this we know that we love the children of God. We love the children of God. Our, only from our foundation of being born again, can cause us then to love uh, and our desire, excuse me, can cause us to love others, and that is then our desire town to love others because we have been born of God. And this is John's first test of this genuine faith. Since we love the Father, we also love His children. And there is a special bond between us, right? Consider, so... It's almost baseball season, so maybe you have these images in here because we're going to talk sports here for a minute. Football ended, baseball's here, and I'm excited. But anyways, sports have this interesting and beautiful way to connect people, doesn't it? I mean, again, imagine this scenario. I'm sure you've been in this situation if you're a sports fan. You go to your team's stadium. You're there watching the game. You're cheering for your team. And then in the final moments your team scores to take the lead. You start high-fiving everyone that's around you who's wearing that same team color, right? If you're, at a, if you're at Oracle Park, if they're wearing the orange and black, you're excited along with them, right? You're high-fiving. Even if you've never met this man or woman that's there, you're high-fiving, you're cheering, you're excited, you're pumped up. It doesn't even end then, right? What if it's a, a walk-off home run that ends the game? And so then everyone's still excited. They're going, and then you start to funnel out of the stadium. You're still recalling, and you could be talking to some guy you've never met about how awesome that moment was, how great it was, how exciting, how thrilling, and you're just excited. And uh, yes, very true for me. I've been there. Actually, Ezra's first game was a walk-off win. Very exciting. He got to experience that. I don't think he cared nearly as much as I did, but he was very young. Anyways, it doesn't matter. But that's, but that's what this does. It brings people together, strangers together. And so for a brief time, for a brief time, you and the others are united in this victory. But then the next day, you'll all return to the real world and that connection's gone. You'll never see them again. But this is not 
This is not the case for those in, the, in God's family. Because we are united. We're united by the joy we have as being new creatures or being made new by the work of Jesus Christ. We are bonded in the good times and the bad times. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one is honored, all rejoice together. Paul says it is a common bond that we have with other Christians by being united by the work of the Spirit to give us faith and in Christ, that makes us family now. So while we're talking about this, I want to pause here and, and make sure we don't get too small in defining the family of God. Because the family of God is not limited to CFF. It's not. It's not limited to just us here. Even going the next step bigger, Pastor Don actually mentioned, you know, uh, confessional church, right? So we're, the family of God is not even just the Reformed Baptists. The condition for adoption into the family is to be born of God. To be born of God. That means that not every brother and sister in this family will agree 100% on all issues. We won't. Now, there are core things, and, and Don actually even alluded to this when he was talking about the confessions, that are non-negotiables. There are. There are clear things, that, and we will address them when I, when I talk about belief, the test of belief. But, however, sometimes we want to exclude a family member because we disagree on these less, lesser or secondary issues. For example, eschatology, the study of the end times. We might say, nope, you have a different view, so we disagree. Or modes of baptism. Again, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, while we disagree, are still our brothers and sisters on the mode of baptism. View of communion. Again, there's dis dispute and disagreement about how to take communion or how frequently to take communion. But these are minor, secondary issues that can't divide us. And so these are just a few of those examples. So given... This reality, it means that there's potential for error in love, which is why we have to be aware of it. We, we are to love one another and we are united with God, but we cannot think that our unity will, will produce uniformity. A subtle difference, but vital. Nevertheless, we must put aside these minor secondary issues to love one another because of the core reality of what God has done for us so that he is glorified. This now brings us to the second test, the test of obedience. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God which we looked at, but then the second part, when we love God and obey His commandments. The test of love and the test of obedience, while different, are so connected to one another. 
loving God is lived through obeying his commandments. And his commandments are clear and his commandments are not burdensome. Consider what John said in his gospel as he records the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And similarly, Matthew records Jesus saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John is showing us the connection between love and obedience. In fact, love and obedience are two sides, essentially, of the same coin. God loves us, and because he does, he gives us instruction on how we find satisfaction and completeness in our lives. Much like a parent, he instructs, his instructions properly take the form of commands, but these commands are not a burden because they lead to peace with God and with other people. God knows that if we're left to our own ideas, left to our fallen selves, we would not become more Christ-like. Instead, we would pursue selfishness and sin, wouldn't we? God pours His grace and His love by giving us commandments so that we know how to honor and love Him and others. And again, maybe you heard this in verse 4, and it's been bothering you, so let's talk about it. Because let's look at verse 4. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Consider the last part of this, the commands not being burdensome. Now let me just correct some thinking. Burdensome is not equal or the same as difficult. It is difficult to die to yourself daily and to put off the, old, excuse me, the sins of our old self. That is difficult. However, however, the Spirit is with us. The Spirit is with us, and through His power, through His power, we can now put off that old sinful self. The struggle goes on in this life continually. We know this that it won't go until we move on, but it does grow easier as we discipline and train ourselves. So, again, we, we know this to be true. We can't forget this promise of God that the good work that He started in us, He will finish. So again, He will do this. He will complete this, and this will grow easier. But to continue on this thought, what John is saying is not, excuse me, what John is, is not, I got tongue-tied too, Pastor Steve, pardon me. What John says is not burdensome are God's commandments to be honest, to be faithful, to be fair, to be truthful, or to control envy and gossip. These commands are not a burden. They become a joy, or they ought to become a joy as we receive the results of living that kind of life God that, that we know pleases God and brings peace with others, and it will glorify Him. So while obeying God can be difficult, the child of God desires to do it and longs to be obedient. William Barclay puts it this way in his commentary. Difficult, 
difficult the commandments of, God, of Christ are. Burdensome they are not. For Christ never laid a commandment on a man without giving him the strength to carry it. And every commandment is laid upon us proves another chance to show our love. See, we're made new in the Spirit. We're made new by the power of God. That is the strength by which Barclay is referring in his quote here. And the last line is so beautiful. Every time I'm challenged to obey, every time I'm struggling to obey or find it difficult, I am now given an opportunity to show God that I love him. And this is how the child of God ought to view these commandments as opportunities to reflect the love what we have for God. And so this now brings us to the third test, the final test of our belief. Excuse me, the final test is the test of belief. Verse 5 says this, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Verse 1 has already clearly pointed out that Jesus is the Christ, and now in verse 5 we see that he's the Son of God. In other words, we're clearly getting this idea that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is our propitiation for sins, as John's also already said in this letter. And the children of God, those born of God, believe these statements, and that's because they are the foundation of our faith. These are those non-negotiables that we can't disagree on. See, without Jesus, we have nothing. He lived this sinless life. He took our sins to the cross. Jesus gave up his life to save his people. Faith believes this because faith knows without this, there is no hope. Apart from the work of Jesus, there is no salvation. No one can earn the salvation for themselves and is only received as grace through faith. Plain and simple. So this is what we must believe. However, faith does not only produce these works, right? Love, obedience, belief, it brings victory. The child of God overcomes the world, as verse 4 says, and we are victorious because of this great work of God. And we stand confident not because of our own doing, but because we have been born of God. We know our sin and the world will not overtake us and draw us back into the pits of hell because we are the children of God and he strengthens us. He empowers us to love, obey, and believe. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 summarizes this well. For by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To be born of God, as John has said in uh, in this letter, is what that gift that Paul is referencing here in Ephesians chapter 2. We have no merit to claim. We are given faith as a precious gift from God. He has even prepared the good works, those good works of our love for one another, our obedience in his commands, and our belief in Jesus as the Son of God and as the Christ. Faith is this pure gift of God. 
And true faith endures these tests. The test of obedience, the test of of love, and the test of belief. Those born of God. Those born of God. The children of God. As we are united together, we obey God because of our love for God and, and our belief in the work of Christ for our salvation. So we can stand confident in these tests because we've been born of God. And because we've been born of God, we'll succeed in these tests. So, this now transition us into examining these three witnesses. And as I mentioned earlier, these three witnesses are the witness of the Spirit, the blood, excuse me, the water, and the blood. We find these witnesses in verses 6 through 8. So let's go ahead and take a look once again at 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. These witnesses agree. And that's an important concept. And we have, uh, excuse me, this is an important idea, but then to have two or three witnesses is a significant component to God's law. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 states this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Interesting. For there there to be a credible testimony, a single person cannot be trusted, especially in the connection here that's talking about crimes. But when multiple parties agree, then we can be certain of an event. This is fundamental to God's law. Fundamental. And Jesus even appeals to it when he's talking uh, in Matthew 18, when he speaks about confronting sin, right? Bringing witnesses to speak on the truth of the matter. And so we see this beautiful harmony here in God's word. And it's right before us, right here. And God clearly has established this law to aid his people to to have truthful and trustworthy testimonies, but then he uses the same principles to testify of the gospel. And I just find this to be amazing and beautiful when we see how God gives us this law to can help us, but now he then even uses it to show who he is and what he's done for us. And so I just find this to be awesome and amazing to see how God interacts this and, and connects this. So the first witness is, this whole, is the Holy Spirit. And John has said that the Spirit is truth. And in fact, he's quoting Jesus. Because in, in John's Gospel, 15, verse 26, says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to indeed bear witness or to testify about the Son. 
to speak about the Son. And he is a key witness to the ministry of Jesus as he's the one who empowered Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was with him. He can speak of it. So that one's very straightforward. However, there's more debate about these other two witnesses, the water and the blood. And theologians throughout the centuries have argued and offered very various uh, interpretations as to who or what the water and the blood represent. And there are three, one, three major uh, interpretations that we'll look at here. The first interpretation is that the water and the blood are an image back to the death of Jesus. Remember, especially in John's gospel, it's recorded that when Jesus was on the cross, he's, he's stabbed with a spear. And John's gospel notes that blood and water flowed from the, the side of Jesus. And so this first interpretation says, therefore, that the blood and water are symbols of the crucifixion of Christ. And that John is saying that Jesus' death is a witness to the person and the ministry of Jesus in our, save, in our salvation. However, I find this to be a poor interpretation because it misses what the text actually says. It says, this is he who came by came by water and blood. When Jesus was pierced by the spear, blood and water came from his side. So the imagery and the language don't seem to align with one another. This imagery suggests came by, and that, but it, it doesn't make sense when, it then flowed, when the blood and water flowed out of Jesus. Therefore, I find this interpretation to be lacking in a poor interpretation. Now, I'm nervous about this one because this second interpretation is held by Luther and Calvin, and, and frankly, it's always a little scary to disagree with them. <laughs> oh, good, good, you, uh, yes, good, you get it. Yeah, however, they, hold, they held to this interpretation that the blood and the water represent the two main sacraments of the church, communion and baptism. The interpretation, I believe this interpretation also falls because only half of one of the uh, sacraments is mentioned. Obviously, water and baptism, we get that. But then he mentions blood for communion, but that's only half of the two elements that make up communion. The communion has the two elements of the bread, representing the body of Christ, and then the wine or the juice, which represent the blood of Christ. And so if John is speaking of the sacraments here in his letter, then he most likely would have accurately recalled both elements. I can make that claim because he was in the upper room the day communion was established. He was there. Yet his letter only would be addressing one, if indeed he's talking about that sacrament. And because of that, it doesn't seem to be an adequate interpretation. Thus, the third interpretation is most likely the best interpretation. Here, we see the water is again the baptism of Jesus in particular, not just baptism for the believers, but the baptism of Jesus. 
which is the marking of the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then we have the blood on the other side ending his earthly ministry or, or the, the height, or the, not the height, but the, the atoning work of Jesus' ministry by him offering himself on the cross. And so when we see the blood and the water this way, it's therefore connecting us to familiar themes we've already seen in John's epistle. John has challenged the heretical views that Jesus was not divine and that, uh, and excuse me, not fully divine and fully human in one body. Rather, we've looked at these things and they've argued against that, the heretics of his day. So John's use of water now and then the use of blood in this instance is the very foundation of our faith, right? That Jesus is the Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully human. That he was sent by the Father from heaven, confirmed in his ministry at baptism when he said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. But then also he shed his blood is the final and effective covering of our sins. And he's the perfect Passover lamb. As Leviticus records, life is in the blood. So these three witnesses are of God now. If, again, we understand them this way, that the blood represents the, 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 the death and crucifixion of Christ and the water representing the baptism. So again, sort of showing his earthly ministry, his divine hood, or excuse me, his divinity, but also his manhood. So we see that this is then of God, and as we look through them, they point back to the Holy Spirit, back to the ministry of Jesus. Verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood, they all agree. They agree. Thus, we have a biblical standard for a good testimony and the, in the number of witnesses. And then in verse 9, I really think is this exclamation point that John is saying, and if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Of course the testimony of God is greater. He's God. He's not man. He's not sinful. He's perfect. He's God. So we have these three tests. Test of love, test of obedience, the test of belief. And now we have these three witnesses, which are the Spirit himself, and then the blood and the water showing Jesus in his ministry. And so I have to sort of take an aside here to bring up something that's not directly in the text, but it's important for us to know about 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 is a textual, or excuse me, contains a textual variant. And for those unfamiliar with the term, the term a textual variant is a small difference in the manuscript record. So in other words, we have thousands of either partial or complete handwritten copies of the, um, of, the, the, of the scriptures and thousands in the New Testament alone. And so there are discrepancies or these textual variants in this record. Now, when we speak of them in this term in biblical um, textual variants, they're minor issues. And so the particular one here that we're looking at is, again, 
small. However, some people will blow this idea way out of proportion. And they will claim that these differences are really the workings of bad theologians and people with bad intentions, heretics even, wanting to change the very word of God. And this is just frankly untrue and not grounded in any historical argument. If we look at the oldest examples we have of these textual, excuse me, of these manuscripts, uh, again, which we have thousands, we do not find any extra words in verse 7. Because this is the claim that they say that it's been removed. In verse 7, in different translations, it has these words. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Very Trinitarian, but not in the oldest records that we can, that we have. They're just not there. And I mention all of this, again, we could get into the history and I could bore you with that, but I won't, unless you want to later. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you about it. But I mention this because these textual variants are there, and we live in a time when literally anybody with a smartphone can post whatever they want about anything, including the Bible. And so I've literally seen people make this kind of an argument that they say that the King James Version, because the King James Version includes those words that I just read, the King James Version is the only pure English translation. Why? Because it has those extra words. And that these other newer translations, like the ESV or the NSAB or NIV, whatever we want to go down, they say, see, they're not right because they don't have them. They're trying to remove and edit the Word of God. <laughs> However, a study shows that this is just bad argumentation. And with proper study, we find these textual variants are not a threat to the Scriptures, but to the fact that we have thousands of copies of biblical books, and we can confirm that we have rightly translated the Word of God, and especially when we consider our English translations. Now, I understand that might have been a weird tangent for some of you, but there are people that make this claim, and it's there, and so we need to be aware of it. So with that, let's get back to our main point here. And so we know that these tests and these witnesses of faith, because there is any, excuse me, we must know these tests and these witnesses because there is an eternal life or death matter at stake. And those are addressed in verses 10 through 12. And it says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne according his son, concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Whoever believes in the Son, remember those born of God, those children of God, have then the testimony or the gift of faith. As Romans 8.16 states, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you see this? We believe we are 
children of God and the Spirit, God's Spirit Himself, confronts our very own spirit about this truth. And therefore, to reject this testimony is to reject God. Now, people can't make God a liar. You can't. And that's exactly John's point. God speaks the truth. His testimony is truth. If someone rejects the testimony, testimony of the witnesses, or fails these tests, then they are rejecting reality itself. They're living in their own made-up fictional world. They don't see a need for a savior. And so just like when we saw uh, faith bringing victory at the end of John's discussion about these tests, verses 11 and 12 explain that faith brings eternal life. Those with an authentic faith have eternal life. An authentic faith is one that passes the tests of love, of obedience, of belief. And then it agrees with the witnesses of faith. And brothers, sisters, we have, this is the great comfort of our faith. We know we're fallen. We know we've sinned. But God has intervened and made us alive with Christ. We believe this because we are children of God. We take comfort not in our deeds. Rather, we take comfort and rest in the work of Christ. For, he, for we have faith because we are children of God. It's who we are. And so, I'll draw us back to the multiplication tests that I took in school. That gave me confidence in my ability to know the multiplication tables. And again, the witnesses of the clock and my peer agree that I knew them. I'd memorized them. I'd known them. And so likewise, the test of love, the test of obedience, and the test of belief with the witnesses of the Spirit and the water and the blood give us confidence to know that we are born of God. We will endure. Why? Because we are born of God. We are given, excuse me, we are growing in these tests and aligned with the witnesses because we have been given faith. And this gifted faith is victorious. And we have eternal life with our awesome God. And that is great comfort. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this day. And thank you, Lord, for these truths that we know that we will endure these tests because, Lord, of what you've done in our lives. So, God, may you give us confidence and give us peace knowing that we are your children because of the work that you have done in us. So thank you, Lord, for this truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.